It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Kyle York, Chief Strategy Officer at Dyne, an internet performance management company based in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, as a matter of fact. But most importantly, Kyle also acts as an advisor and board member for several fast growth startups. And we're really going to talk about entrepreneurialism and, and sort of question about how, how should we, when, when should we start selling, I guess. And that's certainly one of the key questions that faces entrepreneurs and a million people, I'm sure, have read about this idea of lean startup, minimum viable product, and we read about people wanting to also wait before they to get it perfect before they sell it, and then you know they become entrepreneurs that are afraid of ever selling the product. So we're going to tap into the experience of Kyle and talk about uh, how you start selling, and then we're going to talk about a an audacious venture that he has going as well, entrepreneurial venture. So Kyle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you having me. Well, my pleasure. So. Fill out my sort of sketchy introduction of you is, and tell people about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, so my name is Kyle York. I'm Dine's Chief Strategy Officer. Um, I've been with Dine since uh, 2008. So was the 15th year of a company of engineers. Um, we say internet performance management, but really what we're doing is bringing data analytics and traffic steering capabilities to enterprises to deliver an excellent um, web and application experience for internet-facing properties. So we kind of serve as the glue guys helping monitor, control, and optimize infrastructure behind many of the websites uh, you visit every day. Right, um, many of the popular ones, right? All the popular ones. I mean, you have a lot of traffic. Your your website's important to you. Uh, you're probably leaning on some sort of dying service to help deliver that traffic. Um, and so it's been a heck of a ride. I mean, we're about 450 people today. Um, you know, but I'm an entrepreneur at heart. You know, I grew up in a small business, uh, sporting good retail uh, store here in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm from the area, so our ability to you know, scale dine, um, you know, kind of in our hometown. Our CEO and co-founder Jeremy Hitchcock and I are actually high school um, high school classmates. Wow! So doing in, it all in our hometown is in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire. In Manchester, New Hampshire, exactly right. Very um, nice. So it's you know doing it here is has been great, but you know one of the things along the way is being so entrepreneurial um, and having that sort of spirit has also led us to want to create an entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, as we've grown, you know, stay very close to the startup community through advising and boards and angel investing. And I run a couple of angelist syndicates, um, but also kind of helping, you know, near near close <laughs> founders also build build companies. I've co-founded a couple of businesses. Um, so kind of pause on a lot of things with you know, obviously, Dine as the as the day job and the golden goose and the thing that's enabling everything else to be possible um, at our stage in our company life cycle. Um, but also, you know, keeping my eye on how best to support, you know, fellow entrepreneurs and founders and in, in their efforts and take the lessons and learnings uh, I've, I've had here and uh, try to apply them to some other businesses. Got it. Got it. So when you work with entrepreneurs, is, is what are some of the most common mistakes that you're seeing them make at sort of the early stages of their business? I mean, especially when it talks about, you know, taking a product to market, you know, what are they doing instead of what they should be doing? Well, you know, I think the majority of um, founders that I collaborate with um, tend to be of the technical nature. Um, you know, they 
have been people who have found me or we've worked with in the past um, as customers of Dyn or other companies. Um, and you know, the technical founder who's building a, I work a lot in SaaS or software as a service, you know, B2B applications. And you know, the reality is the technical founder um, either either thinks their product's better than it is too early um, <laughs> or um, is, is all about making it perfect so they're too late, right? And I think there's a fine ba- balance. I mean, you talked about it as minimally viable product. Um, I believe there's never too early of a time to go get solicit market and customer feedback. Um, and as long as you're sort of transparent about where you are in your product lifecycle, um, then you're going to be able to you know, deliver the right expectation, you know, deliver on those expectations because you're setting them, right? Yeah, so, I think that's really a key is, is managing those expectations. Exactly. And, and I think the other thing I'd say is a lot of times, um, especially when it comes to bringing things to market, that that technical founder might be intimidated or afraid of the sales guy <laughs> that they might need to hire or that complimentary co-founder they might need who's the business-oriented person. Um, and that's honestly a lot of how I got into deals really early in angel rounds or, or as an early early advisor, even sometimes pre-revenue, is sometimes a heck of a lot easier to round out your team by bringing on you know, lightweight advisors as mm-hmm. opposed to you know, going all in with a founding team member um, that maybe you haven't dated before, right? right. So, um, but I think it's really critical that you, you round out that team. And you know, I always tell early stage startups, I mean, there's just really four things that anyone including customers, board members, investors, um, partners are going to look at in your business. It's going to be your team, your market, it's your um, you know, traction or go-to-market strategy, and it's your product. And for me, you know, I sort of look at product last because I think good entrepreneurs are going to pivot and iterate and, and find that value proposition in those use cases that their product can solve, but they may not have the exact one overnight. overnight in the first, yeah, yeah. I mean that's fairly common, in especially in startups. You're gonna you're gonna iterate that, as you said, several times. But it seems to me that that places where I've been and you know, I work with a lot of startup entrepreneurs in the same sort of sense is then on some advisory boards too. Is is that yeah? I want to see the CEO go out and sell something. Yep. I don't care if they're technical or not. I want them to go out and sell something because. They're going to do it better than anybody else. They've got that vision, you know. They had that original vision of what the product or service is going to be, and oftentimes are best able to communicate what the value is going to be. For now, the this is the thing. I mean, I agree with you to a degree. <laughs> um, I actually gave a talk at the Next Web Conference. I think it was um, 2012, and I think the title was something like um, "How to Hire Your First Sales Guy and Not Screw It Up When You Do." <laughs> Yeah, and, um, I think I might have used like the F word right, with right. some asterisks. <laughs> um, the 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 thing is, is that the founder, no doubt, um, knows the vision, can articulate the vision, uh, the market opportunity, um, the use cases, the value prop at that early stage, probably better than anyone else. The issue I see is that only works for potentially the first handful of clients. Oh yeah, yeah, but then at least at least at that point, at least my point is they. They get a sense of what it's like from no, the customer really, point of view. It's sort of not. It sort of gives this false sense of scale, like like before the scaling even starts. Sometimes right. for some of the technical founders, because they're like, "Well, wait a second, I'm the best sales guy. No sales leader I'm going to hire is going to be as good as I am at selling it." And it's kind of not the point. Like that's not really where the barriers end up being for scale. Because um, they're still going to pull you in if they're a good at a sales <laughs> to still sell as many deals as possible, but exactly. at the right time, right? So 
you know, it's just that kind of, it's that balancing act of, you know, actually doing the, the pitch and the selling and winning the deals versus building a scalable model. And you, know, you gotta, you gotta get that timing and that balance correct. Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes that. that and my point was is that, you know the CEO just needs to understand what the customers are talking about. No doubt, Absolutely. because if you have that disconnect, and I've seen that many, many times with companies where the CEOs are sort of removed. Technical CEO, they remove themselves from the sales process, don't understand why they aren't selling, but also refuses to get involved to really understand what the customers are really talking about. Well, they tend to be really smart, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they 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 think that you know it's kind of like the. The old Steve Jobs quote, you know, if you wait for the customer to tell you what they want, it's too late, you know. And I think that's any good founding entrepreneur, especially if they've had a little success in the fundraising community or they've had success at a prior gig, sometimes, you know, over overthinks that they might be building Apple, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, that, and that's the outlier use case. <laughs> well, so one of the one of the problems that I've seen oftentimes too is, and you know, I'm always sort of fearful when I'm working with the. Uh, a startup entrepreneur is, is that they're going to go out and hire a VP of sales before their time. Yeah. And there's always seems to be this rush to hire too high of a, of a person. Now, sometimes quite frankly, sometimes that comes from the board as well. Who's maybe trying to place a friend or somebody that's, that's between gigs, but, but that seems to be a real problem. Isn't it? Is that over hiring really before they even know what their sales model is at all? Well, yeah, and I also think, I mean, you got to hire on, on complementary parts and, and, and fit and culture almost more than experience at, 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 in a lot of these companies. I mean, it depends. It could be a hardcore enterprise play with, you know, multiple years of IP getting developed, you know, that's, you know, that's got patents galore, right? I mean, you know, th- those, are, those are different, right? But I think what you, you end up seeing is, I mean, for, I'll give you an example. At Dyne, you know, when I came in, our co-founding team, I, the company was actually founded in 01, and it was more of like kind of think of it like a high-end um, you know, registrar, like a GoDaddy, mm-hmm. you know, more technical user. We, our specialty back then was doing remote access for technical users back into their home network. It was called DynDNS.org. And for the first seven years of the business, it was all self-service e-commerce through the website. But they built an enterprise-grade product for guys like Twitter or Netflix or Salesforce or LinkedIn uh, to be able to you know, name their infrastructure with human domain names and leverage cloud computing and their data centers mm-hmm. and delivery networks and things like that. Well, the reason I tell you that is that the, the approach before I showed up was, well, we'll just build a website and, and the enterprise will come. Right, because that's what happened to get us here for right. the first seven years of our of our company selling to that kind of prosumer consumer market. So when they hired me for them, it was all about finding someone who had some experience, but not too much experience, right? And it was almost like well, why not match. too much? Why not too much experience? And well, if that was wanted, explicit, they why? wanted the match of their similar experience, so that when they were coming at the business from you know our CEO is is more of a product and finance hybrid, our CTO is hardcore engineering and network operations you know, technologists, like they wanted somebody of almost a similar age, similar, similar background, similar experience so that it was almost like a second round of co-founder. Right. So it it wasn't wasn't a a dominant presence perhaps. Yeah, there wasn't a dominant presence or it wasn't. And again, we were different because we had bootstrapped the business. Our first 11 years of the business, we actually bootstrapped. We didn't, we didn't raise a series A till we were in, you know, 25 million in revenue. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we're a little bit of a different use case where there was no, forcing uh, function or, or outside pressures or board forcing them to make moves that maybe they were uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. But 
I do think what really worked is we ended up sort of operating in those first four years of scale, you know, from the $3 million range to the mid-20s range, you know, as sort of hive mind because we were all sort of learning and growing together. Um, and so I think that's just a critical component for, for startups at any stage of any funding story is to make sure it's, it's fit, it's cultural, it's the right experience, not too much experience because especially in this day and age, you know, as, as you know, the dynamics are changing on how you acquire customers and how customer, you know, how much customers know about you before they even enter your funnel. Um, you know, I think it's, you got to be able to be adaptable and evolve and there's not a perfect playbook out there. Um, to, to figure this stuff out. Well, and is there something implicit in what you're saying that, that if you say too much experience, that you're saying that too much experience will mean inflexible? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm kind of saying. I mean, if you've, if you've had success two or three times in your career with a very similar playbook, you know, in, you know, going in early to a company that maybe found that product market fit and you're trying to scale it, you know, that may not work the same anymore. Um, it might. I'm not saying it won't, right? But I think it's, if that cultural fit aligns with the other founding team members, um, I think you're. I think you can get past that, right? I think the flexibility becomes much more aligned. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I, that's kind of what I'm saying. I think it's got to be very adaptable and malleable. Yeah. Okay. I mean, as I'm not too sensitive to that as being older, but um, well, I don't even mean it in age, right? Yeah, I, mean, well, I know. But I think that, doesn't yeah. that sort of come across though a lot of times? I mean, isn't it? Uh, uh, sometimes hard for people. I think it would be perfectly capable and adaptable, but uh, perhaps have an issue because of age getting hired into those roles. It, it could be. I mean, it depends. If you know a lot of, if you're very experienced in your career, are you also going to take a sixty thousand dollar base salary, be um, <laughs> a sales job at a startup. <laughs> so I think it's it's just a balancing act across the board. You know, I think needs to happen. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I think it's really about. You know the type of hire to make. I mean, Mark Roberge is a friend of mine. who's the chief revenue officer of HubSpot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know Mark. I mean, he talks about the four different types of VPs of sales, right? And again, I believe I think one's the entrepreneur, one's the sales manager, mm-hmm. one's the multi-time SVP of sales, and one's the like gunslinger. You mm-hmm. know, you know, and it's like that really depends on who's already in place at your business across your team, right? Because if you're if your head of sales is the entrepreneur, or your, you know, maybe there's a, a lot of times there's a CFO or a COO in the mix, or you know, they have a different differing skill set. I think you need all different types to sort of build that team to scale. Okay, good. Well, we're gonna take a short break. We're gonna come back with my guest Kyle York, and we're gonna come back. We're gonna talk about uh, what I think is a fairly audacious venture that that Kyle's uh, spearheading as an entrepreneur, which I think would be very interesting to talk about. So come back with us. We'll be back in a second. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on demand service which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales rep's calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. I am back with my guest, Kyle York, and we've previously been talking about when's the right time to really bring in sales leadership, what sort of sales leadership do you need to have, how do you make that a complementary part of, of your organization as you're in the startup mode. So 
thought we talked about a specific startup opportunity right now. As Kyle sort of talked about early on, as sort of third generation sports retailer, and somewhat, as I said, audaciously, there in his family business are launching or have launched, I guess now, a new line of athletic shoes. So, <laughs> why? <laughs> well, you know, it's a great question, Andy. Um, and I'm glad we're able to cover this today because we actually just launched. It's called York Athletics Manufacturing. So, YorkAthleticsMFG.com. It actually just launched the product um, to general availability this past Saturday. Okay, so, um, we're, so we're recording this uh, last weekend in February, so or first weekend in March. So first week, yeah, exactly. So Perfect. a few months ago, by the time the show airs, it'll have been a few months in the past. It'll be but, a few months. So hopefully, great sales. Hopefully, we're not sold out by the time this launches, but. You know, recommend checking it out. But the the story basically goes is um, my grandfather, so my maternal grandfather Henry Spalding, um, back oh, in Spalding the 40- Sporting Goods. No, different. Not okay. connected. Not connected. Um, but it was actually he was in Sporting Goods. He was the he was the president along with his cousins. Um, they ran Indian Head Shoe Manufacturing Company mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, for decades in the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, right here in Manchester, New Hampshire. Actually, I, I think I had a pair of those tennis shoes. Exactly. So they had tennis shoes. They had ice skates. They Johnny Unitas's high tops. Uh, the Juice Mobile from OJ Simpson. Uh, you know, th- they they have a claim to fame of creating some of the first astroturf shoes. Um, and you know, Manchester, New Hampshire is a long-term industrial kind mm-hmm. of manufacturing town, and it was brick buildings, skyscrapers on their sides. And but what happened in the in the sixties and seventies? A lot of that manufacturing either went to the southern states or overseas. Um, most times to Asia. And the business shut down, and the the outlet store that had been created in 1958, um, my father and mother uh, took over, Don Don and Gail York took over, and for basically the last 40 years have run what is – you know, kind of the the staple in New Hampshire as the you know, specialty, um, independent, family-owned sporting good retailer. So where you'd go buy your kids' gloves or sneakers, um, but you know they're reselling. You know they're no longer manufacturing mm-hmm. for the last forty years, and all the all the colleges, high schools, little leagues, you know, pop Warner teams. You know that's where they get their uniforms, and it's just been sort of an institution. And I'm actually the middle son of five sons. Um, so my parents. Five sons? Had Holy five cow. Boys, a 17 year age gap. Um, and I'm right smack dab in the middle. And, you know, a few different things came together, you know, as we grew up. And my dad always tells a story about how when he first got into the business, there was something like 40,000 independent sporting good retailers in the country. Mm-hmm. And how there's like 400 left. Right. You know? And, the internet and big box stores and malls and chains have really, you know, done a damper to you know a lot of Main Street type of independent retailers, but especially in, in sporting goods. And you know, the brothers have always talked. You know, over the years, if we started to have more and more career success, um, three of my brothers actually work for a marketing agency, about a hundred people here in Boston and Manchester, called GYK antler and you know we've always talked about wouldn't it be cool to revitalize the original brand and you know what if we could get into manufacturing but you know none of us knew anything about <laughs> making shoes or manufacturing we we all sort of operate in marketing and tech and e-commerce but you know playing a little bit more in the digital world right mm-hmm. nothing, nothing tangible i mean angel invested in a lot of companies, uh, probably a couple dozen, and, and you know, I can only name one, which is Orion Labs, which is a push-to-talk device that is tangible and physical, and you can actually put your fingers on it. Um, so, you know, it, it, we started to get going and talking about it, and a couple of serendipitous things happened. Um, 
Well, first brother, of all, what's what? Yeah, sorry, what, go ahead. What's what's the target market? I mean, what what? I know you want to this you know nostalgia about getting back into manufacturing and so on, but there had to be like an underlying market opportunity you thought you could serve. Yeah, I mean, we we saw a major gap, and and, and again, we my brother was pitching his agency um, to Puma, and actually uh, gets a phone call a couple of weeks after the meeting, and the guy who he met with said, "I love that family story you told." Um, I'm wondering if maybe I could help be a co-founder and build that brand. So we we serendipitously came across a guy who at the same time was saying a trailblazing independent spirit performance, you know, performance sports footwear and apparel business targeting more of the the entrepreneur, the hustler, the the snowboarder, the boxer, the creative, the artist. So maybe doesn't want to wear those hot pink Nikes. Yeah, so Under Armour for the entrepreneur. Exactly. And just, you know, yeah, I think of it more as like, you know, an Under Armour, but like with an edge, right? Mm-hmm. Not for the muscle head, but more for the, for the, the everyday guy who likes to go for a run. And right. work it. Okay, so that was that was sort of the, the target. You got some guy from Puma said, hey, you know, interested in helping out. So what was sort of the next step in terms of sort of nailing down the niche that you're really focused on? And, and what is the, the first product that's coming out? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the next step was, you know, locking him in and we did an eight month sort of study on everything you're asking from a market analysis. Like, where is there a hole? Where is there a void? Where, where is there a lack of heritage and authenticity from the big guys like the Nikes and the Adidas and the Pumas, right? Like, where is there maybe a void that we can go, you know, land and expand in? And, and that's how we, that's how we really came together, but it required a little bit of fundraising, like any good entrepreneurial story. And, I had kind of developed a bit of a reputation for, you know, always blogging and speaking about, you know, the the integrity you get in growing up in a family business and the commitment to community and what my folks had taught all of us growing up about business ethics. And I was actually speaking at a conference and one of the guys in the crowd was a gentleman named Jay Bush from the Bush, Bush Brothers Company, which is Bush Baked Beans, and mm-hmm, you may know mm-hmm. Jay from the Jay and Duke right, commercials. commercials, right? <laughs> um, he actually is our lead investor. He heard my talk and just was very inspired and felt very passionate that there was a, a niche we could carve out, especially in the creative um, community, uh, for a, a brand that could relate to that was unassuming, allowed you to stick out and be you. And you know, that was really the next step was kind of bringing some cash together, getting you know Mark on board to help with that engagement. You know, his name's Mark McGarry. He's the CEO and co-founder. He's on the board. Jay's on the board. My brother Travis, who runs GYK, Antler's on the board, and myself. And you know, we spent, I mean, it's not easy to manufacture a physical good, right? So we spent, um, you know, the better part, that was end of 2013. Uh, we spent 2014, you know, working on kind of the market research study. And really, it was 2015 where we started, you know, just landed on York Athletics as the business, as the heritage, um, you know, with five sons and my dad for 40 years, right? My parents for 40 years with the York name. And, yeah, you know, it's been great. It's uh, it's definitely different. Um, so the first know, product is a shoe. It's a shoe. I mean, well, there's a there's a catalog. The website is live, so folks feel free to check it out. Um, there's a, a a shoe. It's called the Henry, which uh, Henry Spalding was my grandfather. It's actually my first son's name. Um, and it's a low and a mid shoe. They'll come in many varietals and colors um, and, over time. But we're kind of rolling things out as limited runs. And it's sort of this one seems like it's positioned for fighters, boxers. Yeah, I mean, it's the the idea is to really kind of go. It's 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 a it's footwear for fighters. But when we say fighters, we really mean grinders and hustlers and entrepreneurs. And you know, the original we're kind of representing that in the early. Go to market strategies, mm-hmm. direct to consumer brand, right? Sold through the website. Right. So we're trying to target the right, you know, PR and publications for that 
sort of brand um, early on. Um, and it will expand out a little bit broader as we progress. But yeah, I mean, there's, you can see there, there's hats, there's uh, socks, there's a great duffel bag, um, there's t-shirts, uh, and there's more to come. So it's, uh, it's fun. It's been great. It's built on a lot of the tech, you know, it's built on Dynetech, it's built on Shopify, the e-commerce platform. Um, so it's kind of exciting to leverage a lot of the experience we have in tech and marketing and bring it to a, you know, really heritage brand, um, that you know, you hopefully you'll be rocking those shoes, Andy, in Manhattan and uh, California when you're when you're living when you're living your life. Yeah, gosh, maybe I know somebody at the company. Can't we get a discount? Get some shoes? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we all paid full price. It's early, <laughs> right? You know, uh, well, I expect know, you to. We, we got to sell through. You know, hey, I'm from New York. We don't pay a full price. <laughs> so it's it's so it's available just through the website. Yeah, it's available through the website. We did an exclusive uh, retail partnership with Bodega, um, which is a. It's an, it's an online store, but they mm-hmm. also have um, a flagship store in Boston. This is the the brand is based in in Boston, um, and so we did a partnership with them also for marketing and distribution just at launch here as well. And as part of the the effort then to um, sort of develop like a prestige brand around it, you know, sort of exclusive. Yeah, absolutely. And there's and there's a the out of step digital journal too is trying to tell a lot of the stories of our influencers. Um, again, we're leading with very very edgy um, sort of demographic that we're targeting, and and you know I think you'll see over time, um, you know the the brand continue to evolve to have its own sort of media property and personality um, to represent the spirit of the target demographic and audience. Um, so that's a real that's a real play of it. And you know again, it's rooted in a lot of the upbringing of the small business, you know, the sort of stick it to the man, you know, you, you only get what you work for, you know, a lot of these ethos of my dad, um, you know, growing up in that small business where it wasn't always a simple business. I mean, Manchester, there's a great political article recently on the revitalization of Manchester um, as a city and mm-hmm. growing up here where my dad, you know, had his shop, you know, it was downtown Manchester was not exactly uh, where it is today. It was very desolate, run down, abandoned, um, so a lot of the stuff we're doing with Dine and GYK and York Athletics and, and other startup ecosystem stuff is all about trying to create jobs and opportunities um, and wealth creation here in New Hampshire. But also, you know, I think we were introduced from Ben Sardella from Data Nice, who I'm on the board of, who's a West Coast company. So a lot of the work I do is uh, virtual and, and all over the place uh, when it comes to the startup stuff. All right. And do you have your Henry's on as we speak? I actually don't. Believe it or not, um, I don't even have them yet. They're in the mail. So <laughs> I ordered them like everyone else. I mean, I've worn them, um, but we kept this under lock and key. We did not want the product to get out to the market. Um, I will say that the product went through a 100-mile wear test. So I think it was something like, I'm not sure exactly, like 15 to 20 different runners actually wore them all the way around the 100-mile wear test, and it scored very well. So um, you know, the idea is at the mid, you can, you know, run a good six to eight miles in it's a performance shoe, mm-hmm. um, in the, or the low, I mean, and the mid is really a, a training, um, more gym type shoe. Um, but yeah, they're, they both fit very nicely. We had the launch party in Boston on uh, Saturday night and very well received so far and sales are looking pretty good uh, on track with where we want to be. And, but again, Excellent. it's fun to, to sort of carry the family. Yeah, well, I said it's, gosh, such a, uh, yeah, not only the family heritage, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you would think, who needs another pair of athletic shoes? But uh, yeah, I think it's great. Well, there's a whole again. There's a whole target that 
the innovation you've seen in a lot of the big players is you know colors and 3D printing and you know sort of the 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 focus on performance a lot of times has gone away. So you know both Mark and his wife's actually the creative director Elizabeth McGarry. Um, she's got sort of both a you know, worked at worked at you know different major players. Mm-hmm. Also worked at you know Perry Ellis and Nordstrom. So she's got the fashion meets the performance, and Mark's a hardcore performance um, and lifestyle guy. So I think when you see the shoes and you wear them, you know you could wear them with your jeans. You could also wear them to go work out. And I think that's kind of the idea is to find that balance. Yeah, there was a uh, I don't know if you saw the article a couple weeks ago in the New York Times that said that somebody had actually done a, a clinical study and, <laughs> and found that. Uh, uh, People that wore prestige brands of athletic gear actually worked out better and got better results than people. Oh, that that's great! Yeah, and again, I think we want people to identify with what the brand represents. Right. Too. So I think there's an emotional appeal to it as well as the sort of you know, so the kind of feel better, like a health and wellness play. So you know, it'll be interesting to work on. We're we're excited about it. Um, you know, and and I think there's a, a huge opportunity. Um, but again, as you know, with startups, it all comes down to execution. You know, this one. We were talking about sales earlier, right? This one's a little different because it's direct to, to yeah. consumer e-commerce, right? So uh, it's really about shipping units and product, and uh, we're watching closely, and you know every little bit helps. So even hopefully your guests uh, enjoy the brand. Yeah, well, well I said we'll <laughs> we'll make them the official brand of the show. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, well, you'll we'll sell you a little sponsorship here. So um, let's move into the last segment of the show. Is I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests, and the first one is really a hypothetical scenario. It'd be perfect for you to answer is. In the scenario, you, Kyle, have just been hired as a sales leader at a company whose sales are completely stalled out, and they want to get unstuck desperately, so CEO has brought you in to do that. What two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? I think two things. Many times when companies get stuck, um, it's because sales doesn't have tremendous internal support end-to-end across the business. So I think it's important to do a lot of education um, internally to ensure that every area from HR to finance to product to engineering to systems and to your finance and, and HR organization, everyone is on, on the same page, right? And so that's number one. And that's something I call the sales leader tact. You need to have tact as you enter an organization where things have maybe not performed well historically. Develop that rapport and that, those relationships and that trust. Secondly, I think it's really critical um, – Sales might have stalled, but there's probably some flagship lighthouse customers, references, use cases, case studies. Um, I would pick up the phone and or <laughs> pick up the phone, book a meeting, and get face to face with those customers who have been with you for a while, who did sign up potentially before sales got stuck, and learn from them uh, what you're truly doing for them as the customer and the value, the business value that your solutions bring to them, um, to try to then go build a sales model to make that repeatable. Okay, great answer. Love it. All right, so now some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. The first one is uh, when you have an opportunity to go out and sell, which I assume you've done in the past, and I know you've done in the past, so what's your most powerful sales asset? I would say dynamicism. You know, I think I have a lot of energy and passion for um, the companies I'm involved in and, you know, what I've been building and doing at Dine. Um, Mm -hmm. Kind of that intrinsic self-belief, and I think being able to convey that to a customer um, really, really helps uh, enable them to make an easier decision on working with you. Okay, who's your business role model? I love Richard Branson. It's hard not to. 
Who, I mean, he's, uh, he's a broad, broad level, right? I would say, yeah. from a, you know, but I mean, it's probably my father who I've talked a bit about today. I'm um, mm-hmm. just from the straight shooter, no BS. Um, you work for what you get, you control your own destiny. Um, you know, so it's kind of like the, the big, the big one and Richard Branson and the, the, the more tangible, you know, accessible one in my pops. So what's one book you recommend every entrepreneur you work with should read? Um, think and grow rich. Excellent. What music's on your playlist these days? I've been flying a lot. So I listen to a lot of like Bonnie Vare, a lot of, I'm a big independent artist guy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like Dawes, Deer Tick, Bonnie Vare, uh, Wilco. Um, you know, when I'm flying, I like to sort of have the chill uh, music I can either work to or fall asleep to. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, Dawes is big on my list. They're, they're, they're huge. They played the Dying South by Southwest parties um, back in, geez, I think we had them 2011, 2012, 2013, before they even really hit it. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're good friends with Taylor and uh, the, t- the, the guys over there. Uh, oh, really? Here. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I really like them. I'm very involved in the indie music scene, too. That's a whole other podcast. But uh, we, we just we, – we, I'm a co-founder of a company called One Band, One Brand. We host, host music series here in New Hampshire at my brother's house. Um, there's a bunch of different things we do. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll have to continue talking about that after the show. So last question for you is what's the one question you get asked most frequently by entrepreneurs? I get asked most frequently by entrepreneurs about how to scale sales. Um, you know, and I always kind of try to broaden it, my response to how do you scale your go-to-market function? Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes it gets too siloed. Right. And so what's your answer? Oh, my answer, my answer is I think you need to unify, you know, unify your, your go-to-market strategy across all those functions. And uh, like I mentioned earlier about, you know, talking to customers and finding out what that true, you know, business driver value prop is and working backwards um, is really how I think you can think about the scaling. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to establish the market opportunity and then you're going to establish the core to model and the sales plan to scale. Excellent. Well, good. Well, thank you for joining me. My guest today, but Kyle York from Dine Corp or Dine Company, excuse me. And uh, Kyle, tell folks how they can find out more about you and York Athletics Manufacturing as well. Great, sure. So it's, um, you know, again, Kyle York, Dine's Chief Strategy Officer. You can find me at KYORK20 on um, Twitter. I'm also uh, all over the internet at AngelList and LinkedIn and Facebook. You can find me. Uh, Dine is at Dine. Uh, and also, please check out our, our new venture, the, the brothers in the York family at yorkathleticsmfg.com. And really appreciate you having me, Andy. Hey, it's been my pleasure. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is a great way to do that. Because then you won't make sure you won't make you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Kyle York, who shares his expertise about how to scale your business. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. <laughs>